I promise not to ask you questions that I think are hard, but you might think they're hard. <laughs> we might have a difference of opinion, but that's okay. Uh, well, welcome, Cynthia. Thank yes. you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I have been really looking forward to having you on the show. You are one of my, I, I would, I have many interesting and accomplished friends, but you rank up there very, very high because I think you do so many different things. You're so creative. Every time I text you, you're like, I'm in Helsinki or <laughs> I'm getting ready for my show. What did you just say you were having? I'm good. I'm going to have a show in Seoul, South Korea or um, you're definitely my most jet setting friend. Aww. You're too kind, Adrian. Well, <laughs> it's just merely a statement of fact and also a, a great friend. And um and you always feed me really well, too. And I was reflecting on that, too. Every time I come over to your house, I leave pretty much stuffed, <laughs> which is always the sign of a, a, a quality friendship. Mm. So welcome to Feminist Hot Dog. And this is the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast where we uplift everyday feminists and feminism so we can survive our life and times. And we're on episode six already, which I find very hard to believe. Mm -hmm. So Cynthia, you are an artist and I think that really permeates everything in your <laughs> life. It seems like, so yes. can you tell me a little bit about your journey as an artist and when did you first know that that's what you wanted to do? My calling as an artist. Mm. Well, uh, so since I was three, I started drawing everywhere i remember everywhere and like on the walls everywhere <laughs> like on the walls yeah yeah and i remember telling my mom you know i'm like mom i don't know why kids these days they draw on their parents refrigerator and then my mom was like you did that too i'm like no i didn't i didn't really remember i was doing that <laughs> so that was like really funny stories that she told me um but ever since i was a kid uh i remember my parents uh gave me a crayon set and uh, for Christmas, and this is when, you know, Christmas, Christmas, yes, yes, Christmas time, and they're like, okay, we'll make a wish, you know, with for Santa, and and uh, then Santa gave me a crayon set. It's a Sakura Japanese crayon set, and it's so fancy. And so since then, I started, you know, making uh, copies of... Uh, um, ingredients uh what do you call that like i am um, seasoning package oh so yes so when you were my, three my when i was four or five yes so i started drawing seasoning packages <laughs> i'm very intrigued by this do you still have any of these drawings no it's do you ever draw seasoning packages now? No. <laughs> maybe no, you okay, should. So maybe Indonesian? you should bring it full circle. <laughs> <laughs> but like in Indonesia, the seasoning packages are a bit more animated. Uh, you know? But here, 
not so much. Here they have a picture of some gross looking roast beef or, you know, yeah, like something, exactly. some old Betty Crocker looking photograph. Yeah, exactly. So, so I started my art career drawing seasoning packages and then I graduated and started drawing animation, <laughs> like Disney characters. Mm-hmm. And I said I wanted to be a Disney illustrators, you know, didn't think about coming to the U.S. and stuff like this. So. So, uh, so yeah, I pretty much my art education is I, I did it all by myself at home, just mm. practice and practice, practice, um, because at school, what we learn a lot about is making of things. So it's, there is more crafts oriented than fine arts oriented, mm. um, because, you know, that's where you make the money, right, <laughs> make right. a living and, and fine arts is it's a hobby for for the um, the wealthy. That's, that's where you live off of seasoning packets because that's what you can afford. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so yes, yeah, so since I was a kid and I didn't get a formal training until I live in the U.S. Basically, um, went to school at Booker T. Washington Magnet High School, and then uh, afterwards college and grad school and. Yeah, and here I am. And here you are. You're a bona fide artist making money as an artist. So tell me a little bit about the dimensions of, of your life as an artist. I know you are very you do a lot with community engagement and art. Mm-hmm. I always believe that art should be accessible. And um, as an artist, we also have a duty <laughs> to our community. Um, so a lot of the things I try to remember is even though you know art making is such a a private um practice Mm -hmm. um there is this other public practice that i try to uh incorporate and um this is where the art house projects and other community projects uh, come from. But so, okay, so in graduate school, I started an art publication with a couple of my colleagues. This is the last semester of graduate school because I didn't know where I would be and I didn't know what I'm going to do afterwards. Um, during that time, job was a bit hard. The job market wasn't as good. So, and I didn't really want to... Um, say goodbye to this like creative energy that we have because mm-hmm. um, we we're 24-7 in the studio and we we're with all the amazing artists there. So I'm like, how do we continue this? How do we continue the conversation? How do we continue the energy? And, and so one day I'm like, well, we have to create an opportunity for ourselves if we don't have opportunity. And uh, I asked a few of my colleagues if they wanted to join me in creating this art publication. And that's where Expose Art Magazine come from. Um, our mission is to bridge artists and galleries and curators and try to also educate them on how to approach these people. Because in graduate school, we don't really learn that. Mm. <laughs> we don't learn how to be an artist. We learn how to, um, I guess, push your work, but in terms of selling yourself mm. or or selling your work, that we have to do ourselves. So like how to communicate with a gallery and exactly. how to get your name out there. And exactly. Like more of the professional development. There's not much of that mm-hmm. going on. So, um, so yeah, so we created the magazine 
and then eventually we become art press and now we um, we are a supplement publication to a couple of uh, the universities and we're also a member of art press to MoMA, Whitney, a uh, couple of the major museums and also the art fairs like Art Basel, Art Expo, um, Scope and places like that. And um, so then, you know, the publication is, is great to um, reach broader audience, but in terms of looking at art, there's that physical connection. And so um, that's where the idea of the art house come about, is uh, when I moved back to Montgomery, I wanted to show more art to the public, more contemporary art to the masses. And so I turned my living room into a gallery space and um, and then turned the house into an artist residency. So a literal art house. A, a little art house, yes, correct. <laughs> so we, we started inviting artists, um, mostly who we feature at the publication, to come to Montgomery. They would stay a week, two, a month, however long they could. Uh, and then by the end of their residency period, then we have a show and a public talk. Um, and uh, yes. And what kinds of art projects are you working on now? I know that you make your own paint. Are yes. you still doing that? Yes, yes. Um, so I, my medium is a little bit more uh, multi-dimensional. I, I use ink, I use eggshells, um, I use ashes, <laughs> carbon. Do you ever use seasoning packets? Have you ever no. made paint? <laughs> there, there's your full circle opportunity. I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to tell you your business, but I'm just saying the seasoning package. Maybe I'll make, maybe, maybe I'll collect the ashes and then put them in the seasoning package, and that could be a sculptural piece. There you mm. go. So since this is feminist hot dog, I do want to ask you how you think your identity as a woman has shaped your artistic life and if there are any of your any experiences that you've had since because you do you do a lot you tour you publish you host artists and i just wonder if you notice how your gender shapes any of those experiences or what what if you have any comments on being a woman in the art world for me because I'm a woman, I have to do things extra. Um, I feel like I needed to succeed more <laughs> since the art world is, is still very much a man's world. Um, there's still that, uh, that kind of notion of like, you know, people don't take you seriously because I'm quite young. And um, and again, I'm a minority, I'm a woman, so there's all of these box that they put myself into. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's really exciting for me because then it pushes me to be better than what I was the other day, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, it, it challenges me and uh, it makes me work harder. And not because I'm a woman, but because I know I can do better than whoever it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so, uh, so yeah, I don't want to, again, like, I don't want to put myself into, like, a box. But then at the same time, like, 
this woman or this, you know, being young minority or immigrants, artists or things like this sort of create like a preconceived idea of what my art would be um, and things like that. So I guess it gives me the opportunity to prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, and I've and I've heard you say that you know you think you feel like your art speaks to things that are very universal about human yeah. experiences. Yeah, I'm not really making like I'm not really making political work. I'm not. I mean, all art is political, but I'm not. You know, like confronting it head on. I'm not making feminist work. I'm not making work that deals with body, and a lot of women artists make work that deals with figure and the human body and things like this. Um, so I'm not really, if someone were to categorize me, I don't think they, I, I don't know where I fit, you know? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I, I enjoy that because I don't want to be placed in a box because there's no fucking box to place <laughs> me in. So yeah, it's, that's that's one of the things that, hmm, I don't know. Maybe if you ask me this again in five years, maybe the answer will be different. But at the moment, I, I really enjoy not being placed in any box. Well... I'll plan on asking you in five years. Yes. It's a date. Yes. Okay, so there's something else I want to ask you about. Because you and I have known each other for several years now. And, we, of course, we met at an art gallery, which I just love. And oh, yes. Cynthia. We should tell that story, yeah. actually. So I <laughs> went to an art opening where they had lots of free Chardonnay mm -hmm. and was looking at this painting well, actually, it was more of a stencil. It's like a stencil. It was a mm -hmm. stencil on burlap. And Cynthia came up to me and basically said, wow, you're really looking hard at that painting. And I said, I just bought it, which was really an unusual thing for me to do. But I do. I think the I think the Chardonnay might have moved me somewhat, um, helped me along in that expensive decision. And so then we just started talking and then, well, we went out to dinner Afterwards? very soon after that. I think we exchanged numbers and then went out to dinner and we were like instant friends. But I know you and I have talked about how you like people who are artists are very open mm -hmm. and maybe not all artists, but that you in particular are very good at connecting with people. But you're also good at connecting with other realms <laughs> and you have a sixth sense which my secret I'm, talent i just can't i'm so um delighted to learn about this so when did you first know that you had a sixth sense <laughs> yes my secret talent um you know so i'm i'm really skeptical and things like this i don't believe in ghosts i don't believe in you know all the things my parents tell me when i was a kid but uh but then weird things start to happen and and uh yeah hmm okay so for instance when we first moved to the u.s we live in a couple of different apartments and um in one particular apartment at night, my sister and I sleep together, but at night, 
the door would open by itself and closes by itself around 11 o'clock-ish. And it's constantly doing that. Like, so, um, <clears throat> so uh, yeah, and I always thought it was my parents, but then it's not them. Um, and so that's one of the, well, I start telling my sister, maybe we need to go to sleep. And so-and-so is telling us to, to go to sleep and maybe they're just watching over us. Um, but at the same apartment, we would hear cabinet closing and opening. Um, and then whoever this is would cook and you can hear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can hear it like where the kitchen and the stove, you can hear the, the, the sound of. So were you the only one who heard this or did? No, no. My sister is sitting there. My mom oh my is gosh. there sometimes. And my dad also. And we we're just like, mm, you know, <coughs> we had a, a guest come over and he was standing right there at the kitchen counter. And then <laughs> he freaked out because all of a sudden, and this happens always around seven o'clock ish. Okay. And all of a sudden it goes, and then you can see the smoke. And he was, he jumped. He was like, what the hell is that? Well, maybe we shouldn't say that stuff. Oh, no, I say fucking shit all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he jumped and was like, what is that? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, that's just the ghost. That's just the ghost cooking. And it's so that's not time. you having a sixth sense. That's like living in a haunted apartment. <laughs> <laughs> For that particular story, yes. Oh my but gosh. in terms of the sixth sense, like I can feel things. And people say that all the time, like, oh, yeah, I can feel. But I feel like as artists, we're very sensitive to our surrounding. And maybe this is a talent or a skill that everyone can sort of uh, harvest in a way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I do believe in that because um, whenever I go to certain places, I, I, I know if there are spirits or, or things like that. Um, and my neck start to feel heavy mm. and um, and then my eyes start to get watery and uh, yes. Do you feel anything here right now? In this room? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Well, what about the other room? <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me later. <laughs> We're going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing this week. Yeah. So two things that um, I learned about this week that really made my feminist heart sing. One is that I was invited to join an online community of women podcasters. And that's been a really cool experience. Um, folks who are very supportive, really fascinating people who are doing all kinds of these topics that I never even like would never have occurred to me in a million years, but they have, um, devoted their podcast to them and they're all very diverse, very interesting, um, totally fascinating. And they're, and I've just been so impressed with how willing this group is to uplift each other's work. It's just, it's very feminist hot dog. <laughs> it's very, you know, like we're based on the idea that we're stronger together and let's all help each other, you know, do something cool. So that's been, a, that's been a really great thing to be involved in. Um, 
sort of along the same lines, except on a much more gigantic and global scale, I heard about a conference that took place in England in the Houses of Parliament in London earlier this month that was essentially a giant international sisterhood of women politicians who gathered to um, in observation of the 100th birthday of women's suffrage in the UK. So this um, this gathering, it, they're all pa- parliamentarians from 104 different countries. So this is a lot of people. And it was originally planned and hosted by Labor MP and um, quote unquote mother of the house, Harriet Harman. I didn't know that mother of the house was. I realize I don't know very much about the Houses of Parliament as I as I learned more about this story. Uh, so Harriet Harman and then also the International Development Secretary whose name is Penny Mordaunt. So the groups discuss challenges faced, and I'm quoting um, Mordaunt here, um, the challenges faced by female MPs, including balancing work and motherhood. And at least one of the MPs did bring her baby to the conference. It was very, there are some really cute pictures on Twitter. And... Um, and the daily battle to be taken seriously as politicians, sexual harassment and intimidation. Um, And she also commented that female parliamentarians have to show restraint and resolve that their male counterparts don't necessarily have to show. And, you know, particularly when they experience, um, you know, being patronized a lot or kind of having to constantly fight to be heard and really have to, you know, find the inner fortitude to keep pushing for the things that they believe in and care about, um, even in the face of being, you know, intimidated or fearful, um, et cetera. So, which is something we've talked about on this show a lot, how to, you know, how to kind of find your voice when someone is patronizing you or to use the parlance of the times mansplaining to you. So, uh, oh, and speaking of mansplaining, the conference actually almost didn't happen because there was a male MP who objected when um, when Harriet Harman first floated this idea. But luckily, the, the cooler heads prevailed and the plan was approved. And um, so Harman said that this was a historic conference and we will um, and that they left determined to fight yet harder to get equality for women in our countries. She said, we'll make links so people can work together in the future. We'll strengthen our resolve to fight the backlash against women in public life and to get yet more women into parliaments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, especially on the, on the heels of so many women being elected here in the United States, I thought this was a really cool thing. And also what a great, I mean, when you think about women coming together to talk about how to strengthen their skills and their fortitude and how to navigate these common issues. And I mean, they're able to put their national identities aside and really Mm -hmm. focus on developing themselves as successful politicians who are successful in representing the people that they're you know, chosen to represent, which is really what it's supposed to be all about. Not about these like cult of personalities or these sort of, uh, you know, ego driven or ideologically driven decision making. It just, I, I just love it. And I don't want to be 
too naive or too um, idealistic about, oh, well, it's, you know, all, all women are wonderful and they'll only do wonderful things. There's certainly plenty of female politicians in this country who I'm just sort of baffled by their agendas and, and in some cases completely horrified by. So I don't mean to say like, oh, I'll, you know, all and all any woman politician is a good politician, but this particular gathering really, I think, was very inspiring. Um, and among um, other actions that they took during the conference, the woman MPs signed a petition calling on social media companies to help end online abuse and violence uh, against women in politics. And there was a clear consensus at the meeting or at the conference that this was something that was a priority that was definitely affecting women all over the world and their their willingness to run for office and stay in office. So um, I encourage everyone to look at the ha um, the women woman MPs of the world Twitter hashtag. There's some very there's some great photos, some really inspiring quotes. Um, one from a woman who you know is particularly close to this idea of um, the need for social media companies to take responsibility for helping protect uh, women in politics online. Her name is Sei Akiwowo, and she is the founder of an organization called Fix the Glitch, which looks at this, um, at this issue, specifically battling online abuse. She said on Twitter, as I entered parliament today, something felt different. Women just being in the heart of democracy has changed the atmosphere. I am inspired and encouraged. Congrats to all who organized this, and thank you. So, yeah, I really love that story. And um, and I definitely encourage people to check out the hashtag. I'll, I'll post it on the website, too. There's just it's something I can't really imagine. I mean, the United States was not represented. I'm not sure that this is necessarily something that folks in the <laughs> um, in our Congress would get on board with. And also, I'm, I'm not sure they were invited, but I do. um the fact that it, it happened and could be a model and also is going to continue that this network is going to continue into the future is just really inspiring. Okay, so we're going to talk about this letter. I gave you a, sl a, a bit of a preview about this before. Which letter? Um, our dear, dear feminist hot dog. Oh, yes. yeah. Okay, so here we go. Dear feminist hot dog. I recently started dating a new girl. She's totally my type and I am smitten. I had, in fact, started to have feelings about long-term possibilities way before it was reasonable. There's just one problem. She recently told me there was something she had to tell me that might change the way I felt about her. What could it possibly be? I thought, you have an incurable disease? Your dad is a Trump supporter? No. She tells me that she and her sister were repeat alien abductees. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. <laughs> I, I am also laughing. According to her, this happened multiple times in her childhood and was extremely traumatic for both of them all. And says this, she says this fact about her is central to her identity and that is important it is important to her that the person she dates believe her and support her in this aspect of her life. I am by nature a skeptical person, okay, just just like you, Cynthia, and 
This is so far out of my comfort zone. I don't know where to begin. I really care about her, but I am also baffled and extremely concerned. Am I crazy to want to keep dating her, even though I suspect she may be the crazy one? Please advise, signed, dating out of my league and possibly my universe. (laughs) Maybe first... I'm not giving any advice, or should I give advice? Oh no, know. this Maybe. is the this is the advice section. Oh, you, okay. you must give advice. Okay. Um. Hmm. What? So, have you asked for any proof? <laughs> That's my first question. I'm suspecting that her reported experience is probably all the proof that there is. Oh. Although I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe there was some sort of medical exam. I it mean, sounds like the sister the sister corroborates the story. So this is something that is accepted as truth within their family, I guess. So that's an interesting conundrum too because, well, this person is in a, in a difficult situation because if it doesn't sound like she believes her, so that puts her in a position of kind of going forward under false pretenses because the the abduct the abductee is saying I can't date you if you don't believe me. So if you in fact do not believe her, you're tricking her essentially by continuing to date her. On the other hand, what if it's true? <laughs> Is there any marks on her body? I I I mean, mean, like if you've been abducted for multiple times, like maybe like a skin sample, like a prick or some sort. Well, in the X-Files, they implant (laughs) things in your neck or in your nasal passages. Have you checked her neck? Have you checked her neck? (laughs) Uh, Hmm. These are, I don't think we're going to get answers to these questions, but these are questions that you should ask dating. Yeah. Um, and, And my sixth sense doesn't work with alien. It, it might not. It might not work like through through the computer either. We, we have to get this person in the room. Um, well, okay. So I was gonna go back to what you said earlier that you were like a skeptical person. Yeah. You don't believe in ghosts, but yet you. But I. But you kind of. But you experience it, and so it has changed your thinking about it. Exactly. It's like I don't want to believe it, but then again, it's like I'm surrounded by all of these experiences so mm-hmm. how can you not believe it right so, so yeah, it's it's a it's a dilemma that i'm still dealing with yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well at least you don't you're not having to decide whether or not to date yourself yeah that's true that's a, that relationship seems permanent although okay i was watching vice um a few weeks ago this lady in london who married herself oh really yeah well, that's kind of a nice idea. Yeah, YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Did she get lots of presents? <laughs> I don't. I feel uh, like there was an episode of Sex in the City where Carrie Bradshaw married herself because <laughs> some, somebody stole her shoes and she wanted to register at Manolo Blahnik or something. I, I know I probably I'm getting the details of that wrong, but. Hmm. Okay, well, back to the issue at hand. Should you continue dating this person who is an alien abductee? I say, if you think that there is no chance you will ever be convinced that the story could be true, you should probably not go forward. If you think 
um, you can open your mind and maybe ask for some more details. And I mean, who knows? People do. I just, (laughs) it seems very far-fetched to me, but at the same time, who am I to say? To quote Dana Scully, nothing happens in opposition to nature, only in opposition to what we know of it. So, I mean, anything is possible. Who am I, I to say? We have who Trump for president. So That's right. Anything is possible. Maybe he's an alien. <laughs> that would explain some things. Uh, okay. Well, I'm not sure that's a super satisfactory answer. I don't think it has anything to do with feminism either, other than like, obviously you should believe survivors, right? Like that should be our default setting. So if you think that you can um, move forward with that as your mindset, then I think you're okay. But I think you should be honest and let this person know that you care about them um, enough to sort of overcome these initial hurdles. You're opening your mind. You'd love to hear more about it. But no guarantees. (laughs) No guarantees because, I mean... It also could be that this person is laboring under some delusions, in which case they might be laboring under other delusions. So I would watch out for that too, right? Am I being overly judgmental? No. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for validating me. Uh, Okay, well, after giving that maybe maybe not the, the most confident answer that we've ever given on feminist hot dog because that was a that one was pretty out there um but hey real life is pretty out there (laughs) uh let's talk about the hot dog hall of fame hot dog hall of fame now i think you did i know you did your research on this one yes yes okay well there's so many hot dog hall of famers out there but i have to choose one so for this purpose <laughs> of choosing one, then um, I work with a girl, a girl, a lady, a wonderful, lovely person um, named Beth Malone out of Dashboard. What is Dashboard? So Dashboard is a creative agency whose work combines human-centered design and arts-forward project uh, to improve the livability of public spaces. Basically, they work with artists and art organization and connect them with um, warehouses or any public spaces that are not being utilized. And um, they would create this big installation. Um, And so I met them when they were working with Crest on Dexter Avenue downtown. Uh, I was one of the artists that um, that was selected for the exhibition. And the Crest building, just so f- for folks who don't know, is um, a rehabilitated department store that mm-hmm. has been, that was empty for um, decades, really, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Only for the past five years that they um, bought it and then they start working on it. And June? No, sorry. April of this year was the opening of the the building. So um, yes. Yeah, so Beth, um, I uh, I follow what she did. Um, it's actually Beth and uh, Courtney. So there are two of these ladies. Um, 
And uh, so I follow their journey. They work with um, Burning Man and, you know, all of these big arts festivals around the countries. Um, but what I notice is, you know, that, that goal of showing art to the public, to the masses, and art should be accessible. That's, that's where I admire her work. And also, um, the theme that she presented is very uh, community-centric based, and, and it's all about equality and, and social justice. And so, um, so I, I think it's, it's great to uh, check them out because they do great work. <laughs> Very cool. And have you had a chance to to meet her in person? And yes, yes. We do a couple of projects together. We The last project we did is called um, Buhai Lights. And it's this inflatables, this fun inflatables, uh, <laughs> a light up inflatables um, that's being placed in Beaufort Highway at Pine Tree Plaza. Oh, in um, Atlanta? In Atlanta, yes. Again, public arts has to be accessible and how can you we um, sort of bring it to these unexpected places so like a shopping center <laughs> you know art in shopping center yeah. what does that do and um, how does it change the environment how do we change our perception of looking at art when art is not in the museum or in these white walls because what we see oftentimes is you know people being pushed out of their own community. But uh, but there are certain instances where there are successful planning um, that yield a great result, like artist Deester Gates um, with his project in Southside Chicago. Instead of gentrifying it and moving people out, what he did is he created jobs in that South Central Chicago. He created an art center, he created a library, and um, and hire the people who are living in the area. So so this can happen, and I think that city needs to look at their artists and work together with them instead of uh, sort of having uh, disengage with them because artists do see things differently, mm-hmm. you know. And so so yeah so. I have, I've worked with Beth and um, I've seen, I follow what she did with her other projects and she's just so, so wonderful. And um, yes, and I think she should be on the feminist hot dog top list. (laughs) (laughs) Top list, I agree. (laughs) She sounds fabulous, well thank you. My hot dog hall of fame inductee is So as I was telling you earlier, I have no idea if she's a feminist. (laughs) She's only 12. Um, Her name is uh, Jatanjali Rao. She lives in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. And the reason that I have become sort of entranced with her is that she's like a brilliant, accomplished scientist at the age of 12. So part of what has uh, skyrocketed her to notoriety is that she became well-known after winning 
the Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Challenge based on an invention that she created to test water for lead levels. And she got motivated to do this because after the drinking water in Flint, Michigan was discovered to have such toxic levels of lead, her own parents tested the water in their house and um, Jitanjali observed that it was a really cumbersome process and that it was also expensive. And in her estimation, um, which means something because she's super fucking smart, um, that it was an unreliable process too. So she really felt like there was a better way. And at the age of 11, this is, she won this award about a year ago, decided to, uh, to figure out how to make it better. And she did by hacking. I'm reading this off the page because I have no idea what it means. Hacking some carbon nanotubes to detect lead levels and then um, pairing with a Bluetooth app that can translate the results rapidly. And her invention is called Tethys after the Greek goddess of water, which is super creative. And with this invention, she entered and won, as I said, the Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Challenge. I believe she's the youngest person to ever win that award. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's right. And she's also a Davidson Young Scholar. And again, I don't know what that means other than it means she's super smart. Uh, So Jitanjali is hoping to uh, refine her results further, um, produce a marketable device, one that potentially could test for other toxins. And she may well have the opportunity to do that because she developed and tested this invention uh, that won her the award at Denver's municipal water facility. And she um, got that opportunity because she met the lab manager um, when she was touring the water facility. The manager's name was um, Celine Hernandez Ruiz. And Ruiz was immediately taken by Rao. And it was not long before they started working together side by side. Um, so she is she was became an 11 year old with her own access to her own lab space just purely by virtue of the fact that she kind of went in and could talk the talk and and this lab manager was like all right let's do it so um Jitanjali also fences she plays multiple instruments she's already written and published a children's book and she's working on another book a kid's guide to scientific innovation and when she grows up, she aspires to study genetics and epidemiology, although I suspect she could probably just study that now because it seems like she can pretty much do anything. So like I said, I, I, I really can't speak to her feminism, but I do know um, that she's brilliant and multi-talented. And what I love about this story is that she obviously you know, could apply her very, um, you know, her highly intelligent brain to a number of different scenarios, but she used it to help people. So my understanding of why this project won was because it's a relatively simple approach using accessible kind of to get back to that word that you've used several times, accessible materials and that it's, so it's very practical. The idea is to make this test practical and accessible to many, many people also reliable. So she's willing to see things and try things um, that other people who work in this arena have never seen and tried. So, you know, like I said, she's, she inspires me just purely because of 
of her talent and her intellect and also her interest in applying her skills in a way that that makes um, that makes positive change in the world. And I, you know, I, I always I have a soft spot for the kids. I work um, in an education field. I think that children often are not given enough credit for being able to identify problems and do real things to help make change that that they see needs to be made they they know what injustice is they know you know in this case what environmental racism is and they're able to apply their thinking and apply their knowledge and their talents to make change in ways that I think we don't often give them credit for. So this is sort of an extreme example of that and someone who's obviously kind of functioning well beyond her, um, her age in terms of her talents. But I think it's an example of a story where given the opportunity, kids can really, um, can really make the world a better place. Uh, all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much for being here for um, talking about your sixth sense, for telling me your origin story as an artist. I always learn so much about about my guests when I, when I get to sit them, down, sit them down and grill them. So thanks for being willing to get, to, be, to get grilled on Feminist Hot Dog. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so Feminist Hot Dog's theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Love yourself. Love your buns. Goodbye.